welcome back for another episode. Today is a continuation of Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Flood is Still Upon Us. So if you haven't uh, listened to the previous podcast episode, I would recommend doing that. Uh, it is part one of The Flood is Still Upon Us. Okay, so Neville continues to tell his audience, Now I had stepped into a world just as real as this. I am telling you there are worlds within worlds within worlds, and they are all here, right here, just like turning on a radio. You turn it ever so slightly, and you have a new wavelength and a new station coming in, bringing in something entirely different, and they are not interfering with each other. And these worlds are all here now, and they are peopled, just as we are peopling this world, and they are just as real as this one. It's terrestrial, and it doesn't. You don't have to walk to it. I was on the bed. I seemed to walk into it, and I would say, what, ten feet away? But the same area permeated the bed, and the bed did not obstruct it. And that world into which I stepped did not obstruct the house that I lived in in Beverly Hills. It's all here, the whole vast world. Worlds within worlds within worlds. So I tell you, facts are the flood. That's the the deluge. There was no other kind of flood. We are actually inundated with the facts of life. And these facts, we change them every day. Today, this is the cause of so-and-so. Tomorrow, that's not so. It is another cause we have found. And the next day, another cause. But while we haven't found the next cause, we believe that to be the fact. And we worship the facts. So I tell you, all things are in human imagination. Man is all imagination, and God is man, and exists in us and we in him. Blake from Annotations to Berkeley. The eternal body of man is the imagination, and that is God himself. Blake from the Lagoon. There is no other God. It's all your wonderful human imagination. And the one thing the whole vast world aches for is the awakening of the imagination. And when it comes, it comes with the birth of the promised child, which sets a man free from the horrors of this world, we call the world of nature. For nature is simply that principle on which depends the sameness of forms and transmitted light. And so the thing goes over and over. Haven't you observed a year that at a certain time of the year money is tight? All of a sudden it flows. And then, at a certain time of the year, it stops. Why? It's a habit. It's a transmitted state. You fix that fact in your mind's eye. And if you got $50,000 today and say it's the month of December, when money is always tight, you're going to loan the money out or give it away before December comes by. So when it comes by, you are going to be tight again. It's a peculiar, I would say, slavery this thing called nature, and the sameness of forms in transmitted light. Now you can penetrate the fact and break it, and that's what we are here to teach. I come not to abolish the law and the prophets. I come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5:17. And to tell you the real law. It's not washing your hands before meals, although that is a very nice, clean thing to do, it's not giving certain diets, doing this, that, and the other. He explains that the entire law is psychological. 
He takes one of the commandments, which is a graphic one, to show you how everything must be interpreted psychologically. He said, You have heard it said of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Any man who looks lustfully upon a woman has already committed the act in his heart with her. Matthew five twenty-seven and 28 Well, what man has it? What man has not violated that? So he tells you the whole thing is a psychological thing. You cannot restrain the impulse. You may restrain it based upon a thousand little reasons. Maybe you are afraid of the consequences. Maybe you are afraid that someone will find out. Maybe you are afraid of this, that, and the other. But the impulse was there, and he tells you the impulse is the act. Well, if the impulse is the act, then creative acts are imaginal. For it was an imaginal act, so I have to observe my imaginal acts. For the imaginal act is a fact. It's going to actually become a fact, and then it will confront me. There was a lady in San Francisco. She said, my brother, and she said to me, I think he's innocent, but I do not know the facts of the case. But he was given six months at hard labor. He is in the army, and I don't think my brother should get six months hard labor in the army. I said, you want him out? She said, certainly I do. I said, I tell you what, you may try it so that you may give all praise to yourself and not to me. You do it. Well, what must I do? If he was out, would he come home? Oh, yes, he'd come straight to my place. All right, and if he came to your place, what would you do? Well, she said, I would throw my arms around him and kiss him. Feel him. I said, all right, do that. When you go home tonight, sit where you would normally sit. And just imagine that your brother is there, that you have thrown your arms around him, and you are holding him and hugging him and kissing him. The next Sunday morning in my meeting in San Francisco, that woman could rise and tell this story. She said, I went home and I imagined I heard the doorbell ring, and the doorbell is downstairs. I have to run down one flight of stairs to answer the door. So I heard it ring and I ran downstairs, and I flung the doors open, and here stood my brother. I went back upstairs. There was no brother, but I did it so vividly that it was almost like a disappointment that I didn't actually see him standing there because it seemed so real to me. Well, a few days later, she was sitting upstairs and the doorbell rang. She said, I almost broke my neck to get downstairs. I knew what was going to happen. And she threw the door open. Here was her brother. She stood up in the audience and told that story to the thousand who were present that Sunday morning. They all saw her. No one, I presume, would go and verify it. I trusted her implicitly. If she lied to me, then it's entirely up to her. But I am convinced the whole thing was true. I don't check on you. I believe you when you tell me that it happened. But the thing is to practice. We are the operant power, and the flood is on. Let no one tell you the flood is over. And the flood is deeper and deeper because we are more and more inclined for facts. The facts of life. Do you want the facts? Well, you had better make the prison the walls or the prison walls all the thicker. But learn how to penetrate the facts. As you penetrate the facts, you must go to a certain objective beyond the fact. What do you want now? Well, then you go into the state of the wish fulfilled. What is the state? You decide. You determine what you want in this world. 
and you go right into that state and then ignore the facts. Suppose the facts now still deny what you did. It doesn't matter. Let the facts remain. They will dissolve. They will all dissolve because you are going to remain faithful and you will occupy the state. No longer are you going to construct it and not occupy it. You are going to occupy the state. And as you occupy the state, it is going to work. You can do that with a job. A friend of mine in New York City, he came from out west. He was an engineer. And he said, Neville, I want more money and I want more responsibility. I want to work for a certain firm. I said, do you know where they are? He said, yes, on Madison Avenue. They do international work. They build bridges. They build dams. They build things all over the world. And I would like a job that would send me away because I could get three times the salary. I said, well, now go to the place and see where you would sit if you got the job there. Before they send you off, you would work in the home office first, wouldn't you? He said, I think so. Well, go up there and just take a good look. He walked into the place, picked out the desk, picked out the place, and then he assumed. When he got back home, he was seated at that desk, and that was his job. And he named the sum of money, which was a considerable sum of money. He and his wife and daughter used to come to my meetings. Within a month, he was in that job. And within two weeks, he was on his way to the Near East, building bridges. Unfortunately, in a way, he did not live very long. He was a young man, but in about three years he was gone. He had a heart attack, and he was gone. But he would have gone anyway, whether he was here or there, for we come on time and we go on time. But at least before he departed this world, he found the principle, which he will carry with him into the next world, where there is no death. He is restored to life in a world just like this, clothed in a body just like this, only young. Young as he was then, he'll be younger. But he has at least the memory of what he did to get what he wanted, and it worked. So now he goes with the principle in his mind's eye. So when you tell me of your dreams, and that you and your dreams are playing the principle like the lady tonight, she is here. She told me her dream. I asked her to write it out for me. But right in the dream, she is actually discussing with others this principle of imagining and how you imagine a certain state and you produce it in this world and that there is nothing in this world that dies. All things are restored to life and she is carrying on this conversation in her dream. Well, that's most flattering and very thrilling when you can carry it beyond into that what the world would tell you is a state where you are not in control of vision that you're simply the slave of vision rather than its master. You don't direct it, you simply follow it. While she didn't follow it, she directed vision. When you get to the point that you can direct in what they call a state called dream, where you are not supposed to be in control, but you're simply the victim of your vision, well, she is not the victim of her vision. She actually controlled the vision. So the day will come, it's inevitable. We all take off the garment. But I tell you that you are going to find yourself completely restored instantly, not waiting for anything. Instantly restored in a terrestrial world with the problems that you have here, but you will know how to solve them. 
You will solve the problems because you know the principle. So the flood is on. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, is contemporary. Jesus is not something that died. He is something that lives within man, and he is, a dw and he is dwelling in man. God himself came and comes into human history in the person of Jesus in you, in me, in everyone in the world. And the day will come you will know it when you are the Lord Jesus, but asleep to what you are. The day will come you will be completely awake to the fact that you are the Father. And then you will know. I have been asked, why do you express it, why do you express it all the time? This is important. It is so important. The Father is the most important part of Scripture. The most important part of Scripture. Oh, I can have all the power in the world and yet not know that I am God. I can have a sense of awareness where there is not a thing in the world but myself, and yet not, and yet not feel that I am God. But when the Father comes and I know that I am the Father of that one and only Son of His, then I know I am God. There's no other way to know it. If I had the power that I could destroy the universe, I still wouldn't know I am God. And if I was completely aware, as I was in 1926 while reading a book, fell upon my chest, it must have been not more than 10 o'clock when I woke next morning. It's nine, and I had not turned from left to right in the entire interval, because the book was still on my chest, and the light was still on my bed. Usually in the course of the night, a man turns often from side to side. How often, I do not know, but they all do. No one goes to bed on his back and remains there for nine unbroken, or in this case, almost eleven unbroken hours. So I went right down into a deep, deep sleep in a trance, and in that state I became infinite light. There was nothing but light, and I was it. There was no circumference. I was in the center of it all. No light outside of this light that I am. No sun, no moon, no stars, but nothing outside of the being that I am. I was infinite pulsing light. But still, I did not bring back the feeling of being God. That evaded me. But when you see his son, and that son calls you father, then you know. And there is no doubt in your mind as to who you are. That's why I say this is the most important part of Scripture. And yet it's the one thing that people will question me on. Why do you emphasize it? Why do you repeat it over and over? Because it's the one thing in the world that you will one day experience, when, which will convince you that you are God. Not a thing in the world will convince you outside of that. But in the meanwhile, we can penetrate the facts. The man in prison need not be behind bars. We are imprisoned by the things that we do. All right, we can break them, break anything in this world. A man can be imprisoned by gluttony. He can break it if he knows what he wants. Maybe he doesn't really want to give it up. If he wants to give it up, let him create within his mind's eye a scene, a simple scene that if he had given it up, a friend or some relative would know. He doesn't brag about it. They simply know. And there is a normal discussion that he has no longing for it anymore. He has no desire for it. He didn't take any drugs for it. He didn't do anything to feed it. Just simply it wasn't there. 
That certain taste that we have in this world, all of a sudden you've had it, you're saturated with it, and you don't want it anymore. All things are acquired. Today I like, for instance, a thing called an oyster. I love them, especially those lovely eastern oysters. But the first time I had an oyster, I thought I'd die. I was a small boy. I must have been about nine or ten. And I went down to the, it was then called the Virgin Islands, owned by Denmark. They are now our islands, St. Thomas, St. John, and Santa Cruz. And my mother said to me, Now, Neville, you know you are going to a strange place, and they speak Dansky. You don't understand the language, but you'll get by. You are going to a boarding house, where there may be 20 or 25 boarding. You will all sit at one big table together. Now you are a boy, and you do not know their habits. So watch what that lady does, and whatever she does, you do it. I sat down at that table, and here was this plate of oysters. I had never seen oysters in my life before, and then all the little things before it. I saw this lady take a little fork from the side. So I picked up my fork, and then she took a little horseradish. She took something else, then a little Tabasco, and added all these things to it. And then she stuck it into this oyster and dipped it into all that she had done. She closed her eyes and ate it as though she had honey in her mouth. I expected the same thing. So I did the same thing. And when I got that thing in my mouth, Lord, it wouldn't go down. I'm sorry, but this point is so funny. <laughs> uh, I actually like oysters. But anyway, so he said, Lord, it wouldn't go down. And I couldn't bring it up. I'm not supposed to bring it up. Mother told me that, so here it's stuck. But the funny part about it, I not only had that one, I looked down to find there were five others, and they had to go down. Well, that was my introduction to oysters. But now today I love them. I have acquired the taste for oysters. The first time I had a drink, I can't tell anyone that it was something like honey to me. But I acquired the taste, and today I fairly enjoy a drink. I try not to go beyond a certain point because I want to keep my faculties alive, but I enjoy a drink. I've tried and tried and tried to acquire a taste for smoking, but I can't. Therefore, I gave that up after I tried it for about six months, and I couldn't do it. I was then only 21 or 22, and I couldn't seem to enjoy a cigarette, a cigar, or anything. It made me sick. So I gave it up. I never acquired it. But all the other things we have acquired, we don't come into the world with these tastes. We acquire these tastes. You can acquire a taste of living in comfort. You can acquire the taste of living as a gentleman or a lady. Acquire the taste. If you want to actually live like a lady, live like a gentleman, with no pressure to pay the rent, no pressure to do these things, all right. Assume that you are that lady. You are that gentleman. Penetrate the facts. The facts tell you that you are not. You don't have it. Penetrate the facts and live in the state as though you had it. And may I tell you from experience, you'll have it. You will actually have it. Don't ask me how. The ways and means are contained within the state that you enter. So you enter a state. It contains all that is necessary to externalize that state. So pick out your state, a lovely state, and go right into that state and dwell in it. I call that occupying the state and thinking from it instead of thinking of it. Just as you now think from your present state, 
with all the facts around you to anchor you into it, get into another state, all in your imagination, and the facts will appear to anchor you into that state. And the day you tire of it, you can get out of it and go into another state. You know when you move, in, move into a new home or move to a new city, you have to actually adjust yourself to it? Well, you are the pilgrim passing through a numbered state. The state remains, but you, the pilgrim, pass through them, like a traveler passing through a city. The city remains, but you, the traveler, pass through it. So you go right into another city. You don't rub out the state. Poverty remains a state when a man who was once poor moves out of it. He moves out of the state of poverty into the state of affluence. But he doesn't destroy the state of poverty. Anyone can fall into it. As Blake said, I do not consider the just or the unjust to be in a supreme state, but only to be in these states of sleep which the soul may fall into in its deadly dreams of good and evil. That's from A Vision of the Last Judgment. Now let us go into the silence. Okay, so that is the end of part two of Noble Goddard's lecture, titled The Flood is Still Upon Us. And sorry about that one little part where I was I was trying not to laugh out loud, but um, I could just a picture Neville sitting there as a little boy trying to down those oysters. That must have been a funny sight. <laughs> All right. So anyway, thank you again for joining me. And I will see you guys in the next episode. Have a wonderful day.